Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've been trading ghost stories, yeah. but it's time to go against the grain. No ghost stories for you guys, just politics and news. Uh, maybe we'll make time at the end of the show. Yeah. Oh, I got some good ones. My, my little uh, dog companions, my uh, potato chip ghost be gone remedy. Yeah. But before we can get to that, we have real things to talk about. We have to talk some more about the collapse of Israel's ruling coalition. And this is a little editorializing here. Whether there's any way that doesn't bring about the return of Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, I imagine you what, if you if you like Benjamin Netanyahu, you're going to you're probably pretty happy right now. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe they find a way to keep him out. But uh, he's he seems to have uh, prevailed against longer odds than the ones he seems to be presented with right now. Yeah, that's wow. We are going to talk about a very tense encounter between the U.S. and Iran in the Strait of Hormuz. We are going to talk about an escalation of threats over Kaliningrad and just how the standoff could play out and whether there's anybody who wants to de-escalate, please. Step we, up. Yeah, somebody. We are going to talk about a new breakdown of what happened at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, again, does not looks even worse. Every new piece of information makes this thing look more chaotic. You know, however many well-meaning officers there were uh, at the scene, it looks to me like just a, a clear failure of leadership. And so we are going to talk about what kind of investigations should be underway as, you know, this sort of incompetence comes to light. Yeah, no good news has come out for the Uvalde Police Department. No. There's just no scenario, no version of this story that anybody has given us that makes it look good for the police. No, it really doesn't. Or at least for uh, the... The, the way the police are organized, right? And their right. ability to respond in an orderly fashion right. to, to things like this, right? Because I'm sure there are there were officers, we'll talk about this later in the show, but there were officers expressing frustration. You know, why aren't yes. we going in? What's happening? And people going, oh, well, we haven't gotten the order. Well, who's the order supposed to come from? That's the, that's the, the question no one had an answer to for, yes. for two hours there. We are going to talk about a fight playing out in Tanzania between indigenous groups and a government that says it wants to save the land from them. We are going to talk about the consequences of prosecuting or not prosecuting Donald Trump after the January 6th hearings have played all the way out. We are waiting for the Supreme Court's decision on abortion restrictions and a number of other issues. It's going to be a tense couple of days as, you know, we go, are we going to get it get now? Right. Are we going to get it now? What, what decisions are coming out? We are going to ask whether Turkey is going to end up the biggest uh, the biggest winner in Ukraine, at least when it comes to NATO countries right. and Europe adjacent countries. Uh, yeah, that lots more questions, maybe a couple of answers. That's what we've got coming up here. Yeah, there. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go right ahead. Oh, no, I was going to just, you know, I just noticed on the topic of Ukraine and the fallout there, we have the U.S. selling liquid natural gas to Germany for the first time. Yes. A, a U.S. venture signed two 20-year agreements with a German company agreeing to supply 1.5 million tons of LNG per year starting in 2026. And so, you know, we mentioned early on in uh, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sort of great energy reshuffle underway mm -hmm. that the U.S. had taken the title of uh, world's 
top exporter of LNG. Qatar has now snatched the crown back. They snatched it back in May. But I mean, again, somebody is making money off this crisis, right? And it's definitely on Qatar. The reason I say that is I've spent a lot of time in Qatar over the years and um, and covered Qatar when I was uh, a junior CIA analyst. The Qataris ran out of oil in the very early 1990s, but they have 500 years worth of natural gas left in something called the North Dome. Um, they share just a small sliver of it with the Iranians. The rest of it is all in Qatari waters and covers the top of the Qatari Peninsula. The Qataris have enough gas for the whole world if they choose to begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're and gonna I make mean, a lot of money on it's gonna this. be a lot of incentive to do that. Yeah. And it just goes again. Like pe- people are making money. Some people oh, are yes. making money off of this. And that is always important to watch. Absolutely. Uh Brittany Griner's been in the news. Oh man. Uh, there was something there was something that was in today's uh, press that was just so upsetting, so disturbing. And I, w- I wanted to kind of explain it based on my own experience in the State Department. Um, Brittany Griner, of course, is the uh, uh, basketball star who's been incarcerated in Russia on a, a drug importation charge. She allegedly had some uh, vape, uh, what do you call them, vape cylinders, cartridges, cartridges. With hash oil. Right, with some hash oil, and they snatched her. And they've delayed her, her uh, trial a number of times already. Well, it was her fourth wedding anniversary uh, on Saturday. And she had made arrangements through the State Department, through the American Embassy in Moscow, three weeks ago to uh, speak to her wife. And it would be the first time that they would have spoken in months. And so Brittany was supposed to call the American Embassy, and the American Embassy was going to patch the call through to her wife here in the United States. She called 11 times. Yeah. And it turned out that when they made the arrangements, nobody at the embassy thought, oh, that's a Saturday. We're closed on Saturdays. Instead of sending it to the consular office, it should go to the consular duty officer so the duty officer can pass it through. Yeah. Everybody dropped the ball. She called 11 times and 11 so times sad. it went to voicemail and they never got to talk on their fourth anniversary. Yeah. And her wife is upset. She's livid. Right. And her, she has good reason to be. She absolutely does. I mean, she said, look, if you can't, if you can't handle a Saturday, this is a quote from Sherelle Griner saying, if I can't trust you to catch a Saturday call outside of business hours, how can I trust you to be actually negotiating on my wife's behalf exactly. to come home? Because this is a bigger deal than just trying to make a phone call on a Saturday. Exactly right. And you know, this is something that is not terribly uncommon in the State Department, even though I was a CIA officer overseas, when you're working in an American embassy, you have to take consular, emergency consular duty every whatever it is, three, four times a year when it's your turn. And so when you have consular duty, you have the consular cell phone with you. You're on call 24 hours a day. If an American gets arrested or ends up in the hospital or whatever, you're supposed to be the guy or woman who handles it for the embassy, right? If an American needs help, your job is to help that American. Um, But the truth is, most of the time, the embassy just ignores people. If, If you're an American and you get caught, let's say, with drugs in Thailand or Russia or whatever country you happen to be in, the embassy will eventually 
go to the prison to see if you're okay and ask, do you want us to call your folks or whatever? But when push comes to shove, you're on your own. You're, yeah. you're just going to, they're not going to do anything to help you. They might help you by giving you a, a list of attorneys that you could call, yeah. but they're really not going to do anything else. And I think that's what we saw in this case with, uh, with Brittany Griner. Yeah. It's just so, it's so sad. I mean, on what it's everything about this is outrageous, right? Awful. It's outrageous that, that this is a crime to have a, allegedly a little bit of hash oil and a vape cartridge. Outrageous. It's outrageous. You know what? They should have written her a ticket and made her pay a fine and let her go on her yeah, way. Yeah, it's outrageous that she's been, you know, detained for this at all. You know, it's ridiculous that this has been, her her hearing has been pushed back twice now, twice. I believe. Right. It's outrageous that she hasn't been able to talk to her wife. And again, when you say she is uh, arguably the best woman basketball player in the in world. The yeah. Like right. she's a big star. And I'm sort of torn here right. because you think on one hand, I don't th you know, you don't want celebrities to get better treatment than regular people. Certainly. You know, but on the other hand, you think imagine the outcry if this was Steph Curry. Can right. Or imagine? LeBron James or 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 somebody else. I mean, it would be they would it'd be nonstop up in arms That's all day right. long, right? It's also it it's just so it's so sad. It's, and the, it's you know, really Sherelle Griner says, you know, U.S. officials have repeatedly said they're work they're working behind the scenes. They're working really hard to get her home. See, but that's um, just not true. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. It's because. The American government cannot or is not supposed to interfere in another country's judicial processes. Well, no, now, and they here's do the every thing, day. Like, but, you know, I, I when you're talking about the embassy, like not stepping into help, you're like, yes, if you go to another country and you can you break the laws of another country yeah. in that other country. I mean, I think the embassy has an obligation to like. You'd be great if they could come in and help you where there's a knowledge gap or a language gap, right? right? Or an understanding right, gap. Right, right. But you can't really just reach in and pluck Americans out of countries where they've broken local laws that generally they really knew no. about. Generally, no. When I was working in Bahrain, I had a call one night. I was on consular duty. I had a call one night that an American had um, uh, been caught with a prostitute. He, he hadn't paid her. So I, I said, well, what do you want me to do? Can you come to the jail? I said, of course. I go down there. I said to the guy, what's, what, what's your problem? You know, did, did you really need to be, to escalate it to this. Why didn't you just pay her and be on your way? Yeah. Oh, she tried to rip me off. Okay. So I said to the minister of interior, what do you want me to do? And he said, just get him out of here. And so I put the guy in my car. I drove him to the airport and he went on the very next flight out. I don't even remember where it was going. Yeah. In a small country, you can do that. In a large country like Russia, where they've got an actual judicial process and relations between the U.S. and Russia aren't so good, you can't do that, right? You can't. You can't just interfere. So when they say that they're working behind the scenes and they're no, they're not. They're hoping for the best. That's what they're doing. And Russia's not giving them anything, and right? Not you know, like they are also. They've also delayed exactly. this process. Do we think there are good reasons for that? I, I think probably not. I think they are dragging this out. That's right. I think so too. Yep, I think so too. Hey, I wanted to tell you something else. That was kind of interesting to me. I was watching CNN last night, which I generally do, don't do. And I'm going to be honest, I wasn't actually watching CNN. I was watching episodes of, of Adam 12. Okay. And in between episodes, CNN happened to come on okay. and there was something that was kind of interesting. So they were interviewing the mother of one of these morons who was arrested in Coeur d'Alene the other day uh, as part of the Patriot Front, I think it's called. Is that it? Patriot Front? I think so. Yeah. 
And uh, and they were saying, you know, oh, your son is he's a white supremacist and a racist and he was arrested there uh, preparing to break up the Pride Day parade. What do you make of all this? And and she said, and this poor woman, I felt so sorry for her. She she cried repeatedly through the interview. And she said he was not raised this way. He was raised to love and respect everybody. In fact, she said, and then she shows photographs. He has tattoos, one on each forearm. One is a tattoo of the Buddha. And the other one is like, you know, love everybody, uh, defeat hate, something, some silly thing like that. She said, he's just such a simpleton that he's looking around for anybody or any group that will accept him. And so he's 29 years old. He lives in his mom's basement. Total loser. Uh, lost custody of his son. And the judge said, you got to drop this hate nonsense if you want access to your child again. And he chose the Patriot Front rather than his own child. Finally, the mother said, if you're going to be associated with this crazy group, you can't live in my home anymore. And so he packed half of his things in bags and started calling all these other Patriot front guys to say, my mom's throwing me out of the basement. Right. Can I live with you? It turns out that they all live in their parents' basements too. And so he's like, I, I don't have anywhere to go. She said, then you can go live in your car because you can't live in my house. I have to say, mom, out. mom, Calling you a simpleton on national TV. Does he need any more punishment, really? No, I mean, obviously he does. But, like, that's rough, right? That's rough when your mom's like, my kid's Incredible. too stupid to be yeah, held My kid is too stupid. Yeah. So, anyway, I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, and I think we've got our first guest here. Yeah, we is, do. Uh, is just about ready. So, we're going to take a very short break. We have Jonathan Katab today. We have Abayomi Azakiwi. We have Dan Kovalik and Kim Keenan, and there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about. So stay tuned to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take that short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Israeli government collapsed yesterday, and Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said that the Knesset will be dissolved by the end of next week. The move will lead to Israel's fifth national election in just three years. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is facing felony corruption charges but has refused to leave politics, is actually leading in the polls as the top choice for prime minister. And his Likud party is also first in the polls at 24 percent. That doesn't sound like a lot, but he has won the prime ministership with less than 24 percent in the past. The current foreign minister, Yair Lapid, will be caretaker prime minister until the election is held. Meanwhile, a New York Times investigation has found that the bullet that killed Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla was fired from where an Israeli military vehicle was located. The Israelis, of course, blame the Palestinians and then say, well, if it wasn't the Palestinians, it was probably an accident. And the U.S. Navy engaged two swift boats from the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps yesterday. The Iranian boats got within 50 yards of two American ships in international waters in the Straits of Hormuz 
but the Americans fired warning shots and flares and the Iranians broke away. We're joined by human rights activist and lawyer Jonathan Kutab. He's going to help us figure out these issues. Welcome back, Jonathan. Thank you. So happy to have you, Jonathan. Tell us uh, first, what led to the collapse of the Israeli government? It's always been a weak coalition, and it nearly collapsed a month ago. What made it happen this time? Well, it's very true that it has always been a uh, weak government, a coalition uh, which was held together by one idea only, which is to get rid of Netanyahu. Uh, It contained very right-wing elements, as well as, for the first time ever in Israel's history, uh, an Arab party. Right. uh, Which which usually uh, Israeli uh, politicians... uh, of all the different parties, have, have never agreed to allow uh, a Palestinian party to participate. But this time, their hatred for Netanyahu was such that they agreed to have uh, the Arab list in. So this this uh, government never really had uh, m- much of a uh, coherent uh, feature other than uh, to keep Netanyahu out. Yeah. Uh, and and sooner or later, it was bound to collapse, I think. I think you're exactly right. I think it was short-sighted, but at the time, that was the best they could do. Uh, as I said in the introduction, Jonathan, Likud is leading in the polls, but only at 24%. Israel is a country of political coalitions, most of them right-wing. Does this mean that we're looking, in your view, at a prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, again? And regardless of who becomes prime minister, should we expect the next government to be any stronger or, more accurately, any weaker than the last four governments? Well, actually, it is not clear at all that uh, Netanyahu is going to be a leader, even though he seems to be uh, leading in the polls. Uh, But but you see, in Israel, a lot of people vote uh, strategically. By that, I mean... They will vote for somebody they don't like, for a policy they don't like, in order to embarrass somebody else. Oh, my gosh. They they, they do that all the time. In fact, that is exactly what brought the government down, because Netanyahu and his bloc, very right-wing, very pro-settlers, voted against extending the apartheid feature which enabled Jewish Israelis to live in the West Bank as Israeli citizens with Israeli law applying to them rather than uh, the local laws which apply to the Palestinians. So they voted against it, not because they were opposed to it, but because they thought that that would embarrass uh, government and, and, in fact, bring it down, which is exactly what happened. Jonathan, is there a left wing in Israel anymore that's in any way viable? You know, time was, uh, as you well know, where the Labor Party really was was the party that ran the country. It founded the country practically, and and labor governments were were very strong. It seems as though labor barely exists anymore. That is very true. Labor barely exists anymore. In fact, there was a, a danger that they wouldn't pass the necessary threshold to even be in, in wow. anymore. Uh, basically, and there's also talk about them uh, combining with, uh, with merits and forming a new party that is sort of slightly left of center, but you can't really call them left. Not anymore. 
Jonathan, what becomes of Netanyahu's criminal case as we move forward? It seems like this thing has been dragging on for years, and it's not just against Netanyahu. It's against his wife as well. We hear that they're charged. Uh, there are these uh, machinations uh, back and forth in the Ministry of Justice, and then it seems like nothing happens. Why is that? Well, that is also another part of the features of Israeli society. Uh, Netanyahu was hoping all along to stay in power, if for no other reason than to avoid going to jail. And there were different uh, plea bargains that were offered, uh, with the the main uh, sticking point was uh, whether there would be a moral turpitude uh, charge which would prevent him from running in politics. Uh-huh. So far resisted uh, and avoided uh, that being applied to him uh, so far. Uh, whether he will continue to do so or not, I think is anybody's guess. Well, is the system the same as in the United States and, and most other places where if these plea talks uh, don't don't amount to anything that he f- finally eventually makes his way to trial? Eventually, yes. But that takes a long time. Eventually means years. Aha. Right. Right. Okay. Let's talk for a minute about Shireen Abu Akla. Uh, the Al-J- Al Jazeera journalist was killed really in cold blood in Jenin with a shot to the face. Um, it seems clear that Israeli soldiers or an Israeli soldier murdered her and shot her producer in the back as he was running away. An autopsy was conducted by a Palestinian coroner, but the Palestinians won't give the bullet to Israeli investigators. Does that matter? Is it because the Palestinians believe that the Israelis would simply make an excuse and blame the Palestinians for her death? Well, we have had a long experience of... Uh... Israeli cover-ups. Any time something happens, first they deny it. Then they blame it on the Palestinians. Then they say there's uh, uncertainty and we will investigate. And these investigations drag on and on forever and never come up with a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there is uh, confusion. And if something has happened, then it was not intentional. Uh, so uh, Palestinians are simply fed up with that. And they said, we will not participate in, in, in this charade anymore. We welcome an independent investigation, but we can't turn over our evidence to, Israel, to the Israelis to, so that they can use them to exonerate themselves. We know what the bullet is, We know, and everybody knows where it came from. And the Israelis themselves said they pretty much uh, located the... The gun, uh, which 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 probably right uh, was was used. Well, and the Palestinian says, "Why did you turn over the gun to us? Thank you very much. We can investigate things as well as you can." Right, and then nothing ever happens. There was there was a pretty dramatic account uh, yesterday in the New York Times. They finally published the results of their own investigation, and they showed a photograph that I thought was very dramatic. They said that. That first there were um, six shots, and Shireen Abu Akla ran behind a carob tree to protect herself. And they show a picture of her crouching down behind this tree. And her producer had sort of walked ahead of her to see if he could see where the shots were coming from. And then there were seven more shots, and he ran back to her and said, is everybody okay? And she was already dead. It was it was pretty dramatic. And then the Israelis said, well, it could have been Palestinian terrorists. 
Well, actually, no, there were no Palestinians in the area. The only people in the area was this truck full of Israeli soldiers. It's, it's pretty clear cut. And it, it's a mystery to me as to why the Israelis don't just say, look, this was a screw up. Uh, it was uh, a mistake. This, this soldier fired for X, Y, Z reasons. We're going to do the investigation and punish the perpetrator. I mean, how hard not, would that be? Because they're not going to do it. They're not yeah. going to do it. And they don't even have to say they're going to do it. No, no, because they know there's nothing that anybody else can do. And eventually it's going to blow over and then they're going to kill somebody else. I also I wonder and I, uh, uh, Jonathan, I guess you, you would be best placed to answer this. I wonder if if not even pretending to, to to look into this, not even not even pretending that you intend to punish the culprit is deliberate, right? Is a deliberate tactic of terrorism. Well, uh, there, there are times when they, when, when they blatantly say we refuse uh, to do it. Uh, I think th the biggest part of the problem is that Israel has gotten away with it so long uh, that they don't really know how to play the game well anymore. Uh, so they stonewall. Uh -huh. uh, there is such a almost systematic way that they have always followed. Uh, it starts with denial blaming the Palestinians, and then they're saying there is confusion, we don't know uh, the facts, we will investigate. And then when it is proven beyond a reasonable doubt, that is the point at which they say it was a mistake, uh, we will take care of it. Mm -hmm. but, but they have, in fact, gotten away with it so long that they think maybe they can continue to get away with it, I suppose. Right. And, you know, I hate to say, but so far they have gotten away with it. You know, the, there there weren't many journalists either at Al Jazeera or elsewhere who were more famous and more highly respected than Shireen Abu Akla, besides the fact that she's an, she's an American citizen. You know, she's an American citizen. And the Israelis, uh, they don't care. They know that the U.S. isn't going to press them on No, this. I mean, and also the Americans don't care. No. Don't you know, care. I mean— We've had a couple of editorials and a couple of, you know, statements out of the State Department that calling for an investigation, but right, it's just a lot of rug sweeping. I want to ask you, Jonathan, about Iran, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that for a, for a moment and ask you something about Syria. There was a report of the weekend that the Israelis had bombed uh, Damascus Airport, or at least were threatening uh, Damascus Airport by buzzing it, and so the Syrians closed the airport down. This barely made the news anywhere. Like it wasn't even important enough to, to bother covering for the day. Uh, I'd like your opinion on why uh, it wasn't important enough. And two, what, what's actually happening between the Israelis and the Syrians? Because the news that, that we get, of course, in the United States is about uh, the Russians and the Syrians, the Turks and the Syrians, what the Americans are doing with their Al-Qaeda affiliates and the Syrians. We don't hear much anymore about what the Israelis are doing. Oh, uh, Israel is treating all of Syria as an open-air uh, uh, area where they can move at will. In fact, they complained at one time that the Russians were giving uh, Syrians uh, S-3 uh, missiles, which would restrict or reduce their ability to move freely and bomb wherever they wish. Now. Israel is playing a number of games with the Syrian regime. The Syrian regime is too weak 
to defend its own territory. The Syrian regime has to contend with U.S. forces, actually even a, a, a small base, Turkish forces that are located on its land, uh, Russian uh, forces, which uh, especially in Latvia uh, seaport, uh, as well as uh, rebels, uh, local rebels, some of whom are just nothing, nothing more than warlords. Uh, with their areas. So the, the Syrian regime is, is, is uh, concerned mostly with protecting itself, uh, and, and therefore it even makes deals uh, with its enemies, including with the Russians uh, and, and others, uh, and uh, tacitly allows them uh, some freedom of movement uh, in return for, I suppose, giving them protection or for not uh, attacking them. The Biden administration, uh, Jonathan, has done literally nothing to improve relations with Iran. And indeed, Joe Biden has has toughened sanctions against Iran. The JCPOA seems to be dead. And now there's been this confrontation between IRGC swift boats and two U.S. Navy ships in international waters. What do you what do you make of this? Why did the Iranians approach these ships? What was the the goal, do you think? Obviously, they want to assert their uh, their power and their ability to do so. Uh, it's, it's very simple to understand why they would do it. Uh, they want to assert that they continue to be a player uh, and, and that they have uh, they can make life difficult for America as much as America can make life for them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's any strategic plan by Iran uh, or anybody else, for that matter, uh, to initiate hostilities uh, uh, in, in Iran or around Iran. Yeah, that was kind of my my question. Do you think there was any long-term strategy behind this, either on on the Iranian side or on the American side? I doubt it. Yeah. Um, have you seen any indication from the White House that the administration might be interested in improving relations with Iran? Is you know how they used to always say only Nixon could go to China? Uh, is it possible that there could be a Nixon in China uh, moment here, or is this just more of the same that we're seeing from the White House? Really, regardless of who happens to be president. I think the problem with with, with Iran is that there are uh, clearly uh, two different uh, views. There is the view by most of the professionals in the administration that say we need to do, to improve relations with Iran, uh, we need to uh, get the uh, Iran agreement back on track uh, because it's in the U.S. interest, uh, because it prevents uh, Iran from uh, going nuclear, etc. But then there are the politicians who say. Uh, usually at the urging of the Israeli government, uh, that we should fight it tooth and nail. Right. Don't want any uh, good relationship between the U.S. and uh, Iran. We want them to continue to be uh, enemies. Uh, Hopefully, for these people, uh, the United States will even hit Iran uh, at one point. So they're eager for some kind of uh, war which I don't think the administration really wants. On the other hand, it doesn't want to upset those people who are calling for all these things. 
Actually, you raise an important point. Yesterday on the show, uh, we were talking about this new Israeli uh, uh, missile defense system that the Israeli government had uh, had announced and had lauded. And they said that it was regional, but they didn't name the countries that were uh, involved. We can take an educated guess by saying Jordan, uh, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, probably Egypt. Uh, but what about Saudi Arabia? Uh, President Biden is going to Israel and Saudi Arabia in uh, in July. And is it possible that that the Israelis can have even a de facto uh, defense relationship with the Saudis? They certainly have this common enemy in Iran. Do you see something like that happening? Uh, it is difficult uh, because the conventional wisdom has always been that Saudi Arabia is too cautious. Yep. It doesn't want to get ahead of itself. Uh, it doesn't want to burn its bridges with uh, the Arab world. Uh, so it continues to always uh, sort of be on the fence when it comes to these issues. Uh, however, we, we have a, a particular situation now uh, where uh, MBF, uh, the, the prince of Saudi Arabia, who is the effective, uh, powerful person there, uh, has uh, basically a deal in mind whereby he would be welcomed back into America's good uh, wishes in return for making some progress or making some gesture towards Israel, including maybe even uh, joining uh, some bigger coalition uh, against Iran. Uh, because you have to understand, even at the height of hostilities uh, between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, they still maintain good relations and they don't want to blow it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, any any worse than it than, than it is. Uh, so, so there is a uh, a, a situation there where the Saudis still want to be careful. They don't want to openly uh, join uh, Israel in any kind of uh, coalition. Right. Okay. We'll leave it there. That was the voice of human rights activist and attorney Jonathan Kutab. You're listening to Political Misfits. On Radio Sputnik, we're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And John, I know we are going to talk about um, Uvalde a little bit in the next hour, but I just have to mention we have the chief of the Texas Department of Public Safety testifying yes. before a state Senate yeah. um, hearing today, and he just called the response there an abject failure. Yep. I'm uh, glad he finally said it yeah. because there was some pushback from uh, from leaders at the state position, the statewide uh, level. So it's it's good that he finally came out and said it. Yeah. I mean, he seems really I mean, again, uh, 
to some degree, the responsibility lies with him, right? If he's the chief yes. of the Department of Public Safety, it is his responsibility to make sure his officers are trained in these situations. Yeah, and you know he's got uh, a he's going to have some trouble with Governor Abbott because Governor Abbott exempted from Freedom of Information Act requests uh, any request for uh, body cam uh, coverage. Oh. Yeah, just last week. I mean, they do have. You know, the Texas Tribune, as we'll talk about later, uh, they have video from inside the school. So they have a bunch of other video sources that they have been using to put it together. But, yeah, I mean, even he sounding very frustrated, other people saying, uh, you know, this has set our profession back a decade, which, uh, you know, is only fair, right? Yeah, he's right. Oh, well, we will get to that more a little bit later. But I have another story that I want to talk about now, which is something that I am very interested in um, is this tension that can arise between conservation and and preservation of lands on one hand, right, for their ecological value, for their value as wildlife habitat. And on the other hand, uh, their traditional use, you know, and the the rights of the people who have traditionally lived on those lands, right, the rights of indigenous people to use the lands that they, um, you know, they have lived on for much longer than some of these government entities that are attempting to regulate them. Um, And so I, I, it's, this story that we are talking about is underway in Tanzania, but it is something that needs to be reckoned with in lots of other parts of, of the world. Getting into it with us is Abayomi Azakiwe. He's editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for the invitation. So as I was saying, it is a it is a, a standoff, a fight in Tanzania that has caught my eye this time on this topic. The Tanzanian government wants to evict at least 150,000 Maasai people. Uh, This is an indigenous semi-nomadic group who traditionally rely on cattle for their livelihoods and sustenance. Um, Also, nowadays, a lot of Maasai are employed as guards for wildlife tourism businesses as well. And so the Maasai in Tanzania have been allowed to live within the parks that the government has created on their traditional land. But there has always been some conflict in that process. And right now it is increasing. The Tanzanian government wants to evict this group of people from the Ngorongoro Crater Conservation Area, saying there are too many people and cows there. It needs to be protected for wildebeest reproduction and to preserve its water. Villagers nearby say they have been attacked by Tanzanian police. Uh, The government says they're faking. Uh, The government says they just don't like seeing park game wardens around and it's their government's right and obligation to move people away from this, what they say is an area that's overpopulated and under threat. And so I want to start by asking, you know, the Tanzanian government says it wants to ensure that this parkland is protected. And I I wonder if you can tell us what the Maasai people uh, are saying in response. Well, yes, uh, it's been a historic conflict, uh, at least uh, since going back to uh, 2015. Uh, it's gone into the East African uh, courts. They have a regional uh, court system there in which uh, the Maasai have won uh, some judgments uh, in regard to the expansion of these game parks uh, specifically designed for tourism. Mm-hmm. So the Tanzanian government uh, has said that um, they are not infringing uh, on the rights of the uh, Maasai people, but uh, lawyers representing the Maasai people say that they are. Uh, There was a conflict uh, just recently uh, where security forces showed up ostensibly to uh, supervise the demarcation of land, and uh, inevitably uh, there was a physical clash 
which resulted in arrest and uh, reportedly uh, some people uh, were wounded uh, by uh, police fire. So this is a very, uh, very delicate situation that's going on there right now. Uh, but as you mentioned, it's something that has uh, traditionally uh, been a problem, uh, this conflict uh, between development, uh, modernization, uh, tourism, uh, the acquisition of foreign exchange, and also the perceived uh, inherent rights of uh, indigenous population groups like the Maasai, who have been living uh, for centuries uh, as pastoralists, uh, who require uh, significant amounts of land uh, for grazing uh, of animals and other activities that are, uh, of course, a part of their historic uh, lifestyle. Yeah, and I, there are a couple of different threads I want to follow here. I want to start by asking who has access to parkland and wildlife in Tanzania and maybe even in East Africa generally? Because, you know, I've been to Tanzania. I, I spent some time in national parks there. They're very, they're incredible, right? They're also very expensive. You know, safari trips are really expensive. Lodging inside these parks is pretty expensive. And, you know, uh, it seems like we should be able to aspire to a, a conservation process that doesn't just make wildlife and landscapes like these available only to the super wealthy. You know, and I, I wonder if you can talk about how, you know, who who does have access to this incredible natural uh, beauty and, and uh, how does it how does it so often end up that it just, you know, you end up demarking areas of the planet that are just sort of playgrounds for the rich? Yes. Well, uh, according to the Tanzanian government, they own um, the land uh, inside the country. Uh, they do lease it out uh, to private groups, uh, foreign interest groups. Uh, uh, one of the uh, parks is owned by a Boston-based uh, uh, corporation. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the Maasai, who, of course, uh, have their own interests mm -hmm. uh, based upon their own historical traditions, uh, see this as an encroachment. Uh, on their way of life, on their traditional lands. And uh, there's a conflict there uh, that's going on. And unfortunately, uh, there are reports uh, over the last week uh, that it has turned uh, violent. Um, there's also claims that uh, the battle uh, is, of course, uh, representing a string of conflicts uh, that involve some uh, 400,000 uh, Maasai uh, pastoralists. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, clearly a conflict uh, between uh, traditional life inside the country and the objectives of the government, uh, which are, of course, uh, to cater to tourism, but also uh, concern about the own, their own economic development as a nation. And I'm curious also, you know, this is presented as a, a conflict between the government of Tanzania and the Maasai, but I'm curious what kind of representation the Maasai have in the Tanzanian government, if any, because, of course, they live in, in Tanzania, uh, and you would imagine that it's maybe not as clear-cut as, you know, uh, Maasai versus the government. Is there is there representation inside the Tanzanian government of Maasai people? Yes, and uh, in fact, uh, there are reports uh, that uh, at least one person uh, who is an official uh, in the district uh, where there's a dispute uh, is a member of the ruling party, uh, the uh, CCM, Chamacha Mapinduzi, mm -hmm. uh, was arrested uh, in the conflict. Now, it's not clear uh, under what circumstances uh, this person uh, was arrested, but at least theoretically, all uh, provinces and areas in Tanzania have uh, representation within the government. Mm -hmm. 
there. Uh, but uh, the the uh, Maasai in Tanzania do have their own legal representatives, and they do have support uh, by uh, various uh, non-governmental organizations and humanitarian organizations that are more or less on their side uh, in their struggle against the uh, Tanzanian government. I also uh, want to ask you about this legal process before the East African Court of Justice. You mentioned this before. You mentioned that the Maasai people have won uh, some victories there and, and had some losses. Can you can you talk to us about, uh, you know, that court system and how well enforced its decisions are in the region? Yes. Um, there's a uh, African Commission on Human and People's Rights of the uh, African Union. There's also a regional uh, East African uh, court system. And uh, these were set up uh, in response uh, to these types of conflicts. Uh, as you probably already know, uh, the lines that were drawn uh, during the period of colonialism and even the post-colonial period uh, were not the traditional um, demarcations uh, that go back uh, during the pre-colonial period. Mm -hmm. So many uh, peoples uh, were divided. Uh, for example, the Maasai are divided between Kenya and Tanzania. So inevitably, uh, there's going to be a conflict over who has uh, authority mm -hmm. in Kenya, who has authority in Tanzania, uh, what is the dominant authority uh, over the Maasai and other peoples uh, in uh, both Tanzania and Kenya. So in order to resolve these disputes, um, that avenue is open uh, for uh, various groups uh, to take legal action against their governments. Now, how this is interpreted and how it's enforced, of course, uh, is another issue. Um, it appears as if uh, the Tanzanian government has accepted uh, the legal decisions of the uh, East African uh, court. Uh, however, uh, if you speak with uh, spokespersons from the Maasai, uh, they have a totally different interpretation of what the court uh, has handed down. And uh, they are, of course, uh, concerned uh, that their traditional rights are being trampled on and that uh, the security forces have used uh, weapons against them in order to enforce uh, what they perceive to be uh, legal decisions uh, that have been carried out by the government, uh, ostensibly abiding by the East African, East African Regional Court. But inevitably, I believe there's going to be more um, legal action uh, surrounding this situation. Yeah, I mean, there are reports that the Tanzanian government has been punishing people who share stories about this alleged brutality toward uh, the Maasai. And back in April, uh, representatives of the Maasai wrote to uh, the governments of the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, saying more than 70 percent of their homelands had been taken for conservation and investment reasons and that they want outside pressure from human rights organizations and media to make the Tanzanian government respect their rights. Uh, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder if you think outside pressure would be effective in this situation and even, you know, wh where where would it be appropriate for some of that uh, pressure to come from, especially considering, as you say, some of these problems were created or exacerbated by uh, colonialism in Africa and by the sort of lines that were drawn that didn't correspond to traditional ways of life or uh, traditional sort of cultural maps. Yes, and uh, it could provoke uh, a strong uh, form of resistance on the part of the uh, Tanzanian government because they have been criticized in the past uh, by the United States and other Western countries over various issues uh, that go back uh, for decades. 
the government maintains that they are earning uh, revenue uh, from these conservancy uh, projects mm-hmm. that attract tourists. Uh, the revenue that they gain uh, from uh, tourism enables them uh, to build roads, uh, to uh, strengthen their health systems, also to buy pharmaceutical products. And uh, they said, you know, it's essential uh, to their uh, governmental budget. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're in a situation where uh, the government itself feels it would be uh, crippled, uh, so to speak, uh, if uh, they would allow uh, unhindered access uh, to uh, these conservancy lands. Uh, so it's it's a conflict uh, between uh, the Maasai, uh, their representatives, and uh, the Tanzanian government and their supporters. So hopefully uh, additional legal uh, hearings can resolve this uh, peacefully. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be a very unfortunate situation and could even backfire on the government uh, if it's perceived uh, to be repressive uh, and uh, taking um, um, measures against the Maasai people, which could even uh, turn tourists tourists away mm-hmm. from uh, Tanzania. Yeah, and it's such a difficult tension. You know, as you, you mentioned before, land is inv- is very important to this way of life, right? You can't say, oh, look, we want you to maintain your traditions. We, you know, we, we value, you know, your cultural heritage. You just need to do it in a smaller area over here. It just, it won't work that way. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, the Ngorongoro crater is is an incredible part of the planet. And I think, you know, when you see a place like that, there is a sense that uh, there should be a sort of uh, like a, a sort of universal sense of stewardship over it, you know, that evokes this sense that regardless of, of where you were born, that uh, this is one of the parts of the planet that that everyone has an interest in preserving. And yet, you know, you don't necessarily have this sort of international sense of uh, stewardship or desire to preserve some of these intangibles like like a way of life. And when it comes to, you know, the 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 bald sort of reality of of miles of land, you can't just make more. And so, you know, it's it, I hope that it's resolved. It seems like it, it, eventually it becomes intractable, you know, and it does seem as though uh, often what wins out is conservation slash government desire to make money with the land however it wants to and not these sort of human needs that seems to be the the pattern uh and i don't i don't know if that's the right decision yeah it's not clear mm-hmm. um of course we want uh to not have the uh, maasai people's uh human rights uh, violated uh that their traditional way of life uh, their traditional economy should be preserved but at the same time, when you have population growth, uh, when you have uh, the threat of uh, climate change and drought, uh, that of course uh, could represent a problem in terms of preserving the land and even preserving uh, wildlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've seen in other uh, regions of the continent uh, where there's been this conflict as well, um, where people are involved in poaching and other forms of uh, economic. Uh, adventures uh, that are not good for the environment uh, either. So I think there needs to be a meeting of the minds uh, between the traditional uh, societies and the governments, because these governments do have to uh, modernize their economies. They have to build roads. They have to develop their healthcare systems, uh, public transportation systems, and they have to compete uh, in an international uh, marketplace 
uh, that, that is becoming more and more uh, difficult uh, in the post-pandemic era, in the era, in the era of uh, climate change. Uh, so it's a very complicated process, and I don't think there's uh, easy answers uh, to this, uh, to say that uh, the Maasai uh, should uh, move away from their claims and just agree uh, to be relocated to other areas of the country, or uh, whether or not uh, the government should back away and allow uh, the Maasai uh, free reign of the area. Uh, so there has to be some compromise uh, between those two positions. I also wonder what, you know, what do you think is on the minds in the Tanzanian government, the, the government of Kenya and these these East African countries that make uh, such a lot of money, a significant proportion of their, their income through tourism? I mean, you know, we're looking at how high prices for air tickets are now. You mentioned climate change becoming more of a concern. The pandemic remains a concern. And do you think these governments are looking ahead to a future where their tourism revenues might be really uh, curtailed? And do you think they're figuring out how they can make up for maybe this budget um, shortfall? Most definitely. Uh, that would have to be on their minds. Uh, we've seen a drop, severe drop in uh, tourism uh, in areas in Africa uh, since uh, 2020. Uh, there's also the problem of drought and food deficits, uh, not so much in Tanzania, but in Kenya, there's a serious problem that's developing along with uh, Ethiopia and Somalia. And a lot of the focus right now is not on uh, providing uh, humanitarian assistance and food relief in East Africa. Uh, a lot of the focus is on uh, what is happening in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, and even the United Nations uh, humanitarian organizations have spoken about this, uh, their uh, inability to raise adequate funds to address the food deficits uh, that are taking place uh, in East Africa. So I think the governments are looking at this and trying to determine uh, how they move and what economic direction they move in, uh, because uh, the economies are under threat uh, right now from various angles, uh, as I mentioned, climate change, uh, as well as uh, the problems associated with the decline in uh, tourism. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a very complicated problem. Is there a model for uh, conservation and coexistence that the Tanzanian government and the Maasai uh, could, could look for? Or are we still trying to build that model? Yeah, I think it's still being built. Uh, we've seen similar problems, uh, for example, in Rwanda. Uh, in South Africa and Botswana, uh, you know, involving the uh, uh, the more nomadic uh, pastoralist groups uh, there, because they require a lot of land. Even in Nigeria, there's been huge conflicts that have become deadly uh, in the central part of the country uh, between farmers, uh, agriculturalists, and uh, people who are considered pastoralists. Uh, so. Uh, it's 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 something that's going to have to work itself out. It's not going to be an easy solution to these problems, and uh, I think the U.S. government and uh, U.S. base and Western base humanitarian organizations and human rights organizations uh, should attempt to look at this uh, from a, a very objective standpoint and uh, try to understand both sides of the conflict uh, before. Uh, they make judgments uh, either against the um, Maasai people or against the uh, Tanzanian government. Yeah, that was Abayomi Azikiwe. He's editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to tell our listeners uh, where they can go to find more of your work? Yes, uh, they could go to our blog at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. Uh, I'm on uh, social media, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter as uh, Abayomi Azikiwe. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you can Google my name, and uh, you can see some of the uh, articles that I publish in uh, various uh, websites uh, around the world. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for your interest. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about Merrick Garland's surprise visit to Ukraine, which was timed uh, timed with an announcement that the U.S. is updating its policy on anti-personnel landmines with one big caveat. And I think something to me connects those two, uh, those two stories. I'm going to ask our next guest if he sees that connection as well. All that and more coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We are going to talk a little bit about uh, U.S. foreign policy and Merrick Garland's big trip to Ukraine. We're going to talk, as we've mentioned, about uh, what's come out about the Uvalde school shooting and what that should what that should trigger. We're talk a little more about my favorite new topic, and that is Turkey and how Turkey is very cleverly turning just everything that comes along to its advantage. Oh, and yes. honestly, we, we should take note, right? We should. There are some countries that could take some lessons from Turkey right yeah, now. That's right. All of this and more we're going to get into with our next guest, Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney, a human rights activist, and an author. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with what I thought was a very enlightening combination of headlines today. I first got a notice that the U.S. is updating its policy on anti-personnel landmines, but only outside the Korean Peninsula. So we are told Joe Biden believes that these weapons have disproportionate impact on civilians, including children, long after fighting has stopped, and we need to curtail the use of them worldwide. That is a quote from the notice, but not when it comes to uh, these these people on the Korean Peninsula who just don't matter, apparently. So we have this odd little announcement. And then we have the alert that U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland is in Ukraine today to advise the country on its war crimes prosecutions. And I feel like there's something connecting these two stories that has to do with Washington's selective vision when it comes to what are war crimes and where they take place and who should be responsible. And I, I wonder if you can maybe elucidate that a little bit. Yeah, well, of course, the U.S. has always been hypocritical about that issue. Um, the U.S., you know, has committed more war crimes, certainly since World War II, than any country. Um, it's not even close. But it is interesting. First of all, yeah, the U.S. has been very reluctant to sign on to the anti-personnel mine uh, convention for a long time because, of course, the U.S. regularly used landmines in places uh, like Vietnam, uh, famously, where they continue to blow up, um, Cambodia, Laos. Um, and as you say, at least they're now taking a better position, but not in the Korean Peninsula, I think, because the the U.S., which still has a heavy military presence there, has a giant base. I think it's like four football fields long. Um, 
and still, uh, you know, helps the South Koreans um, with their uh, border at the 38th parallel, which has landmines protected, probably is not interested in get, getting rid of those landmines. But I also, and so, and also it needs to be said, look, the U.S. really isn't interested in engaging in wars anymore that would involve landmines. That is to say, mostly the U.S. is involved in aerial wars that it can win quickly and decisively through the air where, where people are, our soldiers have very little chance being killed, right? So they, they're not really interested in sending ground forces in anywhere uh, that would use landmines. So that is to say, I think for the po point of view of the U.S., it's an obsolete instrument of war. So they're more than happy to finally sign on to it because, again, I don't think it's going to be majorly used uh, by the United States. As you say, it is uh, interesting that Garland is going to Ukraine. Obviously, He's excited to try to prosecute Russia uh, for war crimes, but obviously will sh show no interest in prosecuting Ukrainian forces for the war crimes they've committed in the past eight years against, against their own population in Donbass. But I'm sure the U.S. will help aggressively uh, prosecute, um, uh, try to prosecute the Russians. I'll just say of, of note, I I teach uh, law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, and I noticed they've publicly stated they're going to help cause of prosecuting Russia war crimes. Again, they say nothing about Ukraine. You know, so this is going to be very one-sided criminal prosecution as far as the U.S. is concerned. I also wanted to just ask, I mean, on Ukraine's judicial system, the United States has been advising Ukraine on legal processes for a long time now, right? And I just wonder how that had affected justice in Ukraine before the war. Yeah, well, that's very, I mean, it, it's obviously a, a funny question in a way because we know that Ukraine has not abided by uh, you know, the Geneva Conventions, again. And it, but we've been advising them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we've been advising them to actually violate the law in that respect. I mean, let's be honest, right? The U.S. has been uh, really in control of the Ukrainian government since the coup of 2014. The U.S. has, you know, at best turned a blind eye to Ukrainian Ukrainian atrocities in the Donbass. The U.S. has openly worked with neo-Nazis there. So, you know, it, obviously the U.S. was not pushing Ukraine to abide by international law, including, by the way, the Minsk agreements, which the security, U.N. Security Council unanimously approved, which would have required Ukraine to stop attacking the Donbass U.S. never required Ukraine to abide by that, and that's one of the big reasons we're in the situation uh, we are now. Yeah, so at best, the U.S. did nothing to get them to abide by international law and quite possibly, and I think most likely, encourage them uh, to ignore international law. I also want to talk a little bit more about Turkey and the very canny way that it has been conducting itself in this conflict 
The Wall Street Journal today had a story about how Turkey is going to be more cautious about sending weapons to Ukraine, particularly about sending its TV2 drones, which are credited with really helping Ukraine's resistance in the, the early days of the invasion. But Ukraine has also continued to meet with Russian officials, uh, meeting with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov not long ago. You, Turkey continues to buy Russian products to allow Russia to use its airspace. And Turkey wants to present this behavior as maintaining itself as a credible peace broker, right? Someone who both sides can talk to. Turkey three weeks ago announced its intention to launch an offensive in northern Syria. Russia very quickly said, you know, we would strongly prefer that not happen. Uh, and Erdogan has so far been sitting on his hands. And so honestly, you know, we, we've talked, we were talking just yesterday on the show about how when it comes to the U.S. and European sanctions on uh, Russia, the, the big winner appears to be China, uh, with Russia sort of not suffering too badly. If we're looking at NATO members, uh, benefiting from this war in Ukraine, I, I'm going to guess the biggest winner has got to be Turkey. And, and I wonder what you think of Turkey's performance so far. And, you know, wh how far can they go? You know, how far can Turkey ride the coattails of this terrible war uh, to more power and prominence for itself? Well, it seems to have limitless ability to do so. You have to give Erdogan a lot of credit for how he's handled this. I mean, he's been masterful. Turkey's an interesting country, right? It straddles uh, several worlds, you know, the East, the West, the Muslim world, the Christian world. It is this very interesting country in the history of the world. It is a gateway between different regions. And Erdogan is really now playing every side of the fence on this uh, trying to have his cake and eat it too. Again, trying not to upset the Russians, uh, while also trying not to upset the West, and in the, in between, trying to gain as much advantage as he can. And everyone seems to want to court him in Turkey, so they seem to be playing along with it. It's it's quite uh, impressive. And yeah, the, the Turkey has not sanctioned Russia. In fact, if you want to go to Russia, I happen to know this because I am going to go there. Uh, the only airline you can go on. From the U.S. is Turkish Airlines through Turkey. So uh, they're maintaining transportation routes. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, trying to gain advantage, for example, in Syria, where Russia has a lot of control, um, hoping that the Russians may eventually look the other way to that. So it's quite, quite a diplomatic feat that he's pulling off there in Turkey. Yeah, it's remarkable. I, I also want to talk about Kaliningrad, which, uh, you know, is something that also came up on the show yesterday, but this blockade hasn't resolved. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, Kaliningrad is this Russian exclave. It's sort of surrounded by Lithuania and Poland. It has access to the Baltic Sea, and Lithuania has decided it's not going to allow products going from, you know, the, the rest of Russia to this piece of Russia because of the sanctions that Europe has put Russian products under. Russia is saying, you can't blockade, you know, that, that, that's not kosher. You can, we have transit agreements in place. You can't blockade Kaliningrad and is now warning of serious consequences. And so I wonder, you know, what, what do you, how do you foresee this playing out? And I wonder what kind of conversations must be happening, you know, within NATO, because either Lithuania is sort of out here on its own 
doing stuff that the rest of the block, you know, would prefer not have happen. Or it could be somebody hoping for an escalation here. Yeah, there's no way Lithuania is acting alone. And in fact, uh, both Lithuania and Poland are sending troops closer to Kaliningrad. It's interesting. People should look on a map where Kaliningrad is. It is oh, yeah. Russian, island, uh, Russian island, right, in the middle of Europe, which it gained through World War II. I believe it had been part of Germany, and again, because the uh, uh, Soviet Union defeated Germany, it got this nice little island uh, area. It's not an island per se, but it's, again, this isolated part of Europe where it has a military base and a port. And the West has been making noises after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine that maybe it should give up Kaliningrad. And now you see these movements that are now putting pressure on Russia in Kaliningrad. So, I mean, it's a very scary situation, I mean, because Russia would not give that up uh, without a fight, for sure. So any move to try to take Kaliningrad back from Russia uh, would be met uh, with, I think, all-out war. I would agree. Russian territory is Russian territory. Yeah whether it's been Russian for the last thousand years or for the last 80 years, it makes no difference. I mean, I, so I what, what happens next here, right? What's the, what's the tit for this tat here? Russia's warning of consequences. Uh, but what could they be? What could we be looking at? Well, again, I mean, whether this escalates into a greater war between Russia and some of the NATO partners, like possibly Poland or, or Lithuania, um, you know, it, it, those are real possibilities. Again, if, if they continue to threaten Russia's interests in Kaliningrad or, 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 or anywhere. We now have Moldova, which seems to now also be uh, used at the present by NATO as a proxy, possible proxy war against Russia. You know, so it's getting very dangerous, you know. Um, I think all these countries are playing with fire and the possibility of a world war you know, looms, I think. Terrifying. Let's come back to the U.S., where it's not really any less depressing here. But as John and I have been talking about, uh, the Texas Tribune last night dropped an in-depth timeline with video footage and transcripts of what played out in and around Robb Elementary on the day that a shooter killed 21 people inside the school. And, you know, their... What they have put together shows a a growing collection of officers who seem to have no idea who's in charge or who their orders should be coming from. We mentioned on the show yesterday that officers never seem to try the classroom doors that we were first told the shooter had barricaded himself behind. Um, But they had access for a tool for opening locked doors anyway, right? They never needed to wait for the keys for these doors that could not be locked from the inside anyway. It uh, shows officers clearly worried about taking on a shooter with a powerful rifle while they were armed with pistols. You have officers frustrated that the classroom hadn't been breached. We learned that officers had access to things like ballistic shields from early on in the crisis, as long as an hour before the classroom was actually breached. And we know that while they were waiting for orders from the right person or for keys to doors that could have been opened without them or for more of the equipment that they did already have, that the shooter fired at least three more times. You know, you have in the meantime, at least one teacher who had been on the phone with her husband saying she's bleeding to death. And again, like, I don't want to speculate as to what what exact injuries any of these people had or if any of them could have been saved. But at the very least, it seems possible that one or more of these teachers 
could have lived if they had been taken to a hospital an hour sooner, right? Even 90 minutes sooner. They did not die in the first burst of violence. I think the head of uh, Texas Public Safety in the conversation that um, John and I were just talking about, or that his testimony before a state Senate hearing said that this was just, uh, you know, a, a total catastrophe, a complete failure, and that the officers on the scene had what they needed within minutes of the shooter arriving to actually go into the classroom. And so, you know, we know the FBI is investigating the response to this crisis. And I just wonder, Dan, if, if anything else should be happening at this point. It's an incredible thing that, that that's happened here. I mean, you, you state it well. Uh, obviously, these police stood outside where, while kids were being massacred. We know some of the police themselves had kids in there and actually went in and got their own kids. We know, right? We know at least one mom was they attempted to arrest her for trying to go in and get her kid. I mean, they just seem to have done everything wrong. Um, when, of course, the customs. Uh, Authorities came and wanted to go in and help. They tried to stop them from going in. The best way you could characterize it is that these people were bogged down by turf battles and lack of a chain of command. And at worst, that they were cowards and, and just let this happen because they didn't want to uh, put their own lives at risk. I mean, either way you look at it, heads need to roll. I mean, I need to be fired. Maybe some even uh, prosecuted if, on, on what happened. I mean, this is an amazing breach of the public faith. You know, the, the, these people who are, you know, devoted to, you know, allegedly to protect and serve did neither on that day. Should we um, should we allow this to stay sort of confined to Uvalde, or is there something that we should be? Is there should this uh, color the the national conversation on policing in the United States? Well, you know, I, I'd say it should because only because there's been many incidents of this, right? I mean, obviously, each police department is its own separate thing, right? I mean, it is a bit hard sometimes to judge one police unit in Texas from one in Pittsburgh. Or so they're not. It's not like they have the same leaders or something like that. They obviously act differently and, and whatnot. But we see this so much. I mean, when you compare the lack of response to this shooting to police over-responding to traffic violations and you know where, where they end up killing someone because of a broken taillight or something, you put all these things together, and, and, and it shows there's a problem. We have a serious policing problem in this country, and there needs to be some sort of federal response to try to put this thing right. Speaking of serious American problems, uh, we are awaiting a, a big report that's supposed to be released today on the failures of the U.S. public health system during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the report obviously was prompted by our poor COVID response, but the expert panel convened also wanted to address the failures of the nation's public health agencies to protect Americans from other health risks, including drug overdoses, diabetes, and maternal mortality. This is according to a New York Times report today. The panel is going to call for a new national public health system. And one of the panel's members said the pandemic taught us that we have to have a coordinated, integrated public health network that functions. And the only way that we can bring that together is by having a national approach. So my, my overall question here is, the panel apparently takes issue 
with the level at which public health is managed, right? It notes that public health in the U.S. is largely managed at the state and local level and that the CDC doesn't have the authority to compel states to act, right? So it can't investigate outbreaks of infectious disease in a particular state unless it has been invited to do so. So they take issue with this. They say this, you know, hamstrung our response. This as well as archaic approaches to aggregating data were factors in American deaths. And the panel is going to call on Congress to give the Department of Health and Human Services authority to establish and enforce standards for data collection. All of this was very exciting to the New York Times and sounds fine to me, but I don't see anything in the write-up of this report about how people access and pay for health care. And so, you know, yeah, sure, give more power to federal agencies to compel data collection and to manage it better. But it seems to me, Dan, that if we don't have other changes, we will just have a more accurate picture in real time of people dying because healthcare is too expensive and difficult to access in this country. And so I want to ask, you know, will these recommendations, can they, can they change anything for, for actual Americans who want to just go to the doctor? I mean, obviously what you're saying is correct. We need a national healthcare system. Uh, we need Medicare for all, which people have been saying for years. The U.S. did worse than any other country on earth. Let's just start with that proposition, right? In terms of the absolute number of cases and deaths from COVID, no country did worse than the United States. Okay, so there's a problem. And one big problem that separates the U.S. from every other industrialized country and many non-industrialized countries is we have no national health care system. We have a health care system run for profit where hospitals are shut down because they're not making enough money. Um, and that was part of the problem here. There have been a lot of uh, healthcare clinics and hospitals shut down over time before the pandemic, which caused a lot of the hospitals still open to have these, uh, you know, huge caseloads that they couldn't manage. Um, you had hospitals and clinics rationing care you know, where people couldn't get cancer care or other care longer, you know, for longer-term issues uh, because COVID took priority. Meanwhile, those people, uh, some of those people died uh, in the meantime. And that is not a system that is sustainable. Um, is that system part of the system that, that's going to be fixed? I, You know, I don't think so. I don't think they're even talking about that. Okay. Data collection is great, but in the middle of a pandemic, I'm not sure data great data collection is going to solve your problems, right? Really, the data collection probably is going to help you most for the next pandemic, right? Um, so, yes, uh, there are huge problems. It's a disgrace. It is a disgrace that, that things are left to the state and local level. I mean, we don't have borders in this country that are real. It's not like... You know, if uh, people have a, a disease in Ohio that we're not going to get it in Pennsylvania, it's just killing us. Um, uh, you know, but that's not going to be solved. I don't think that, that these things will be well solved. I think uh, the whole system is too infected with the profit motive, um, and that is this—that is the problem that will not be dealt with here. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, do you think there's any chance that the, you know, because it does seem like the panel was tasked with looking at the COVID response and that they themselves said, now we're going to also look at these other, uh, you know, the, these other failures, uh, public health failures that we think are are as urgent. Do you think there's any chance that, uh, say, Democrats looking at the midterms decide that they are going to actually pick up this extremely popular uh, Medicare for all or single payer health uh, ball and run with it or no, the forces aligned against it are going to remain too powerful? I'd like to believe the Democrats would, but I don't think they will. Maybe you'll hear something out of a Bernie Sanders or something, but that's as far as it'll go. Honestly, you know, we talked about the school shootings, I, you know, and after every school shooting, they say, oh, we should do something about guns, and we never do. But I think, frankly, this will be similar. Um, they'll have some hearings, we'll wring our hands, and business as usual will continue. I mean, I, I'm sorry to sound cynical, but that, that's how I see it going in this case. No, no, that's been a, that's been a theme for the weekend. Just because you sound cynical, I don't, I don't think you're wrong, unfortunately. I mean, I guess what we can say is, uh, we were asking whether the Democrats would do that. They won't. And so I guess what we have to say is there are other there are other individuals and organizations and parties out there that will carry that banner. And so maybe maybe what happens is they gain a little more attention, a little more strength in the aftermath of this failure. That is actually a question I'll put to you, Dan. Do you think that actually what happens is that, um, you know, the pandemic has serious political repercussions for the the two parties, uh, the two ruling parties in the United States. And that's a sort of long-term outcome we can at least be hopeful about. Again, I, I guess I don't see it. And the reason I don't see it is because, you know, both Trump and Biden dropped the ball on this, right? They were both pretty horrible. And so both parties have blood on their hands, right? Um and so they kind of cancel each other out. So so just, but do people then turn to, you know, do people finally decide these two parties are not going to represent my interests or take care of me in a crisis? Maybe there's another that will. I think most people in their hearts believe that anyway, but they don't know how to change that. I don't, and I don't know how you break that two party, you know, system and not just the two party system, but even a system that crowds out, you know, uh, people at the margins within those parties, like a Bernie Sanders, right? or Tulsi Gabbard. Um, you just have a system that is really sewn up to protect those that have um, against those that don't. And uh, yeah, I think people would love a third party or a fourth or fifth party. Now, frankly, most would like a second party, a real second party. Yes. <laughs> but again, is it going to happen? It isn't going to happen out of thin air. I mean, it would have to take a lot of organizing to do that. And it, it can't be done in the short term, certainly, maybe in the in the in the long term. And I would like to see that. Obviously, you look at Lula in Brazil, who created the Workers' Party against all odds and took power. I mean, it can be done. Um, sadly, there's not much of a history in the U.S. of that being done. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll maybe we'll we'll manage a future of it. We'll we will have to see. That was Dan Kavalik. He's an author, an activist and a human rights attorney. I'm oh, sorry, a labor attorney. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk a little bit of uh, Supreme Court decisions, constitutional law and prosecuting Donald Trump or not. We'll see. <laughs> Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is holding its fourth day of public testimony today. The hearing is focused on former President Trump's efforts to illegally overturn the election results in Georgia and Arizona and how the former president then tried to submit phony slates of electors. The committee is also looking at the roles of presidential attorney Rudy Giuliani and Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, among others. Meanwhile, the committee continues to investigate the role of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who pressured officials in Arizona to overturn the election in that state. And in the Texas Republican Party convention this week, participants passed a resolution saying that Joe Biden is, quote, an illegitimate president, unquote, and they loudly booed Republican Senator John Cornyn, the Senate minority whip, just because he's involved in negotiations for a gun control bill. We're joined by Kim Keenan. She's an adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel for the NAACP. Welcome back, Kim. Hi there. Always a pleasure. Oh, no, it's always our pleasure. I've been so looking forward to this conversation for a whole bunch of different reasons. Like you, we've been following developments in the January 6th committee pretty closely. And so far, the committee has made what I think is a compelling case that Donald Trump and those around him committed crimes related to his attempts to overturn the election. Late last week, the Justice Department asked the committee for thousands of pages of transcripts from interviews that the committee's investigators had done. Do you think that means that the Justice Department is considering filing criminal charges? And do we have any idea against whom these charges might be filed? And before you answer, I want to add one thing. There was a little bit of a kerfuffle this morning before the hearing actually started. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson said um, that the committee would not be making criminal referrals to the Justice Department. And then Lynn Cheney jumped in and said, oh, yes, we will. And then a Democrat said, oh, yes, it's our duty to make criminal referrals. Well, what, what's going on behind the scenes, do you think? Well, I do think, you know, as in all things American lately, you know, there's politics to every layer of everything that happens, right? You know, I think there are some Democrats who think the purpose of the hearing is to let the American public know the, the whole story, you know, not just the little snips and snatches you can hear on different networks with different points of view, but really a fullness of what was really going on at that time. So I, I do think that, you know, when you see them kind of and go, yeah, yeah, we will. Of course we will, but we must. And, you know, it's, it's because people really haven't um, sat together and said, you know, this is what we will say. So it just really shows you how everything, everything, I feel like we're slicing at the, at the thinnest level, the membranes of how we decide who we really are as a country. Absolutely, the Department of Justice must be looking at this to file charges. If you don't file charges, what you say to people is, do it again. Sure. Bigger. Do it. Sure. You know, do it more. So, yeah, yeah, they have to. And I, I do think there's some people who jump to the top of the list. I agree that it can't be, you know, it can't be sort of like Sally uh, from the Midwest who decided to go in March. And, you know, maybe she chanted a few things and, you know, maybe she even threw something. I think it has to be 
really people who masterminded what happened that day. And I think when you start to think of those people, you think of, you know, Rudy Giuliani's like at the top of that list. I mean, I think he was willing to do anything. I mean, he, he almost, doesn't he remind you almost of the Watergate hearings? Oh my gosh. You know, some of the testimony. Doesn't he, he even looks like them. Like a throwback, right? <laughs> I think he goes down. I think I think <laughs> I think no matter what side you're on, you know, if if you do something bad and you do it badly, everybody notices it. You know, it doesn't matter what side you're on. I think people like him. I think people like John Eastman um, probably have because they they were clearly urging people to do things that, that not that they that could have been illegal, that might have been illegal, that should have been illegal. They knew or should have known that they were illegal, and they. They pursued it anyway in their blind, um, you know, loyalty to um, then President Trump. You know, let's talk about John Eastman for just one second. It, it, this is something that I never knew until this morning, that John Eastman was a law clerk for Clarence Thomas. And after he left that position, after I guess it was a year, uh, he gave an interview to uh, this author that's writing a book about the Thomases. And he said that Clarence Thomas told him on his first day and the other law clerks, you are the leaders of tomorrow, right? Which, you know, is true. These guys all come from Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Princeton and places like that. And they're the legal minds. These are the ones that become judges and become governors and things like that. Um, he stayed in touch with Ginny Thomas in the intervening years, not with Clarence Thomas, but with Ginny Thomas. And somehow, he became radicalized. The implication was that it was it was she who was responsible for radicalizing him. And now he finds himself stuck in front of this committee, giving depositions, facing possible felony charges and uh, and being stuck uh, with with Donald Trump. And I can't help but to think that, you know, this isn't an accident. This is what the likes of Ginny Thomas have done. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, people don't realize it, but when you clerk, it's almost like you become part of another family, right? It would not be surprising to me that a law clerk of Justice Thomas would spend a lot of time with his wife. I mean, it doesn't even seem abnormal to hear me say it because become a part literally of their family. And, um, it, you know, yeah, he could have spent time with her. I don't, I, you know, I mean, it would have been normal. It wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been anything like, you know, she has this group of, you know, clerks. Right. Co-opted. It would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't seem that way. And if, if, if her goal was to create a cadre of, you know, brilliant young minds to, you know, radicalize or to, you know, basically decide that, you know, it's not working the way the way the Constitution says, let's try some other stuff. I mean, she she would have influence. She would definitely have influence. I mean, she herself, you know, she's not like a housewife, uh, wife of a justice. She, she was the general counsel of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So I yeah, she was see that she could have he could have been unduly influenced by you know her seniority and her you know connection to the court and you know i i do think these are things that you know she knew or should have known that you know she has to avoid um you know doing things that are you know 
inappropriate. And I mean, I, I do think that, you know, these are people who know better. These are not, you know, these are not people who could say, you know, I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know that we were having these talks. Right. I, didn't do, I knew that he was a future leader. I knew that his path would cross, you know, history. And I wanted to leave him influenced in this way. And it, it's too bad. You know, it's really too bad. But, you know, you know, you, you know, so I tell people this all the time. When you have a mentor, you're not just following what you see in a moment. You are, you are, you must pay attention to the character of that person, the integrity of that person, because it may be that the person you see, you know, making a speech or whatever seems great. But in reality, you know, I say, I use the example, they might kick cats. And in which case you wouldn't want to follow. Right, right. You've got to pay really good attention um, to who they are in a holistic way so that your decisions reflect that. You know, I wrote myself a note here that, that, and you've essentially just said it out loud, um, that Ginny Thomas is not just some random nut or a housewife who happens to be married to a Supreme Court justice. She's a prominent and important attorney in Washington, D.C., the former general counsel of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. That's a very big deal. But her political positions have pushed her so far to the right that she seems to have gone so far as to implicate herself in in some of these actions that may be crimes related to the election or attempts to overturn the election. Do you think that she has committed a crime or is she just an irritating private citizen who who's gotten some press? Well, I don't think she's a regular private citizen. I mean, she's the right the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice. And she herself has been, like you said, a former general counsel of, a, you know, a nationally recognized organization. So um, I think she can never really just be an irritating private. And I think that her actions are cloaked in much more, um, you know, splendor than what your net, your average, you know, person who, you know, writes to the government agency every day has. And I think I think that that she can't get beyond that. She's not going to be able to say that she thought, oh, I'm just, you know, Jenny Thomas housewife. And I sent these I did these things. I, I think that's going to be a problem. I think it remains to be seen whether what she has done has risen to the level of a crime. I do think that uh, there's some information that seems to put us on the path. I don't know that it together as we sit here at this date that we have enough. But I, I do think if I'm her, I have not avoided the, the golden rule of, you know, uh, avoiding an impropriety, the appearance of an impropriety, the appearance right. that she's done all the bad things she shouldn't do. And that's what's getting this high on the radar is because when stuff appears to have violated the law, a lot of times when you look closer, it has violated the law. So, I'm, you know, I'm not willing to go that far. We, we don't have something that's, you know, so smoking gun like. But I do think that she's in the wrong places at the wrong times, And it's continuously that way. So I think that that's that's going to be a problem for her. And I think the big damage control is going to be can you split what she's doing from what her husband's doing? And I think that that comes under scrutiny, too. And this is at a time when the Supreme Court has its lowest American approval history ratings in history, which says something in itself, that people don't feel as though they are justices really looking at these issues um, 
de novo, like, in, you know, as if this is a new situation and we're trying to figure out what to do. They're looking at them from the prism of their ideology rather than really the construct of the law as it exists today. They keep saying they're not going to go beyond the letter of the law, but it just seems like what happens is beyond the letter of the law, or they've thrown off the the letter and spirit of the law by decisions that 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 don't really make sense. Um, so I think that you know this is a time when that spotlight is shining very brightly on them, and um, you know she's not going to get away from this sort of unscathed because it's clear that she's not a private citizen. So prosecutorial discretion is an important thing in the law. And prosecuting a former president on felony charges is a (laughs) pretty big deal, not to make an understatement, but it's a pretty big deal. And frankly, I have trouble imagining it. But politically, what happens if the committee lays out the evidence against Donald Trump and then the Justice Department does nothing with it? Do you see that happening? You know, I think it's a tough place to be. I I don't think that um, Garland Merrick would do well as attorney general to turn a blind eye to it. I I do think that, you know, when you're watching this as the public, you know, there's a difference between something that looks really bad and sounds really bad and something that actually broke the law, right? I think here is one of those times when, um, you know, we have to be thinking about what is the evidence that they're going to amass. Now, there's some bad things. I mean, you know, you, all you got to do is listen to these hearings, you know, um, you know, trying to get the votes to fall a certain way. Um, you know, if he had done these things, I think in the, in the corporate context, a lot of these things, some of them wouldn't make a big difference, but I, I think he would have violated some, some Sarbanes-Oxley type rules. Uh, so I think, that the question becomes if in this context there are there are um, conclusions that can be drawn with respect to whether it violates specific federal law. But, um, you know, I don't think they can do nothing with the evidence. I think the more that there is and the more complete and full that it is, and I, they do seem to be doing a really good job of trying to pull the evidence in in a very, very thoughtful way. Um I think that that hurts, right? Because you can't you can't lay out evidence that clearly points to a federal crime and then say, oh, but, you know, I mean, he's not president anymore. Let's, right. You know, right. Exactly. That's not going to happen. Exactly. And, you know, besides Donald Trump, I, I agree with you that Rudy Giuliani and Navarro and Eastman and Meadows and all these guys ought to be talking to A-list criminal defense attorneys here in Washington, because Congress is one thing. You know, Congress is so fickle, you never understand which way they're going to go. But when you see a news report that the Justice Department is requesting thousands of pages of, of transcripts from testimony, closed door testimony, you know that's because they're building cases against people. And if you have two ounces of brains, you're going to take that hint and you're going to hire a criminal defense attorney. At least I would. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can. Oh, come on. You know, <laughs> in the press, you don't take that. You don't take the media with you when you go look for your high powered uh, white. Coat. Exactly. So no worries. Don't worry. I, I can assure you that if they don't know any better, 
they may still have a friend or two left who does. So they, no, no, you don't have to worry. I think a lot more than the list that you gave are off chatting someone. It's a, it's a, it's a going to be a good month. Oh yeah. And attorneys because they are coming for you because they, they're going to have to, it, it, it's you now thousands and, and a closed. We all know that behind the closed door, you're more likely to say that, which you would not say. And um, when an open door. So yes, definitely people are checking this out. I don't think they really um, have a choice because you don't know, you don't know. And I, I mean, you'd be surprised. A lot of times people hire criminal defense attorneys in anticipation, right? I want to make sure that you're free for me. Right. And I use his name because he was so fabulous. You know, I'm going to make sure, Johnny Cochran, if you were alive, that you're free from me. I'm going to block your time in the future because I know that I'm going to need you. And it's as simple as that. And, you know, maybe maybe your your criminal defense attorney can even negotiate a negotiate a deal that keeps you from being charged in the first place. Maybe you've got some testimony. Maybe you have some documents. Uh, Maybe you're not. The, the the big fish, maybe you're, you're the lower hanging fruit. And so you talk to the Justice Department behind closed doors and you save yourself a prosecution. I think that's what we're going to start seeing in the coming months. We're going to start seeing people flipping on each other. I think there's going to be lots of flipping and flopping. I think that's going to happen because ultimately um, you, you, a lot of these people were and as my mother would say, they were followers. They weren't leaders. They were followers. And the followers jump off the boat first. So, um, although some of these people are leaders and they're having to jump off because they, you know, they know what they did was wrong. Yeah. I think some of the followers will jump off faster than some of the other people. And there's a lot of people out there that were saying, I told you so the whole time. So, um, you, yeah, all of them are going to come together and they're going to, you know, and you know what? Let me add one thing. I, I, I went to – because this is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Um, I've been thinking about Watergate a lot, and I, I went to Wikipedia just to look at, at what sentences were. I was curious as to what the sentences were. And the sentences were almost universally under 18 months, and almost all of them were under 12 months. The only person who got any real time was G. Gordon Liddy because he was a jerk about the whole thing in the hearings and in court. They, he had his right hand up in the air. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? He says no, and he sits down. So he got four and a half years. But everybody else, you know, with good behavior and and they had uh, – uh, parole back then, which we don't have now. Everybody did three months, five months, six months. Those days are gone. When these guys are prosecuted and sentenced, they're going to do real time. It might be in a minimum security camp, but it's going to be real time. And uh, I, I think they're probably in the process right now of trying to save themselves. Hey, let me ask you about this Texas Republican convention that we saw. This was newsworthy because it was so far out of the mainstream. Its resolutions were non-binding, so that's no big deal. It's not like it's going to change the face of the Republican Party or anything. But for a state party to to issue a resolution that the that the election of the president of the United States is illegitimate is pretty profound. I'm unaware of any precedent for something like this. It seems to me that it could have the effect of splitting Republicans rather than uniting them around Donald Trump. Uh, We're seeing similar splits in the Republican parties in Arizona, Missouri, and Nevada. 
but then there are other state parties, for example, like Pennsylvania, Indiana, all over the place that that want to just get past Donald Trump and focus on 2024. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think that for the most part, what you're seeing is that, you know, once you let the genie out of the bottle, you know, some people, you know, Texas is a place where everything has to be bigger, right? Bigger than ever. Right. And so they go big and they go hard. You got to give it to them. They're consistent. And um, I think this is, um, maybe a bridge too far, even for Republicans who are Trump loyalists. And I think that, you know, when they think about what what they want in terms of their their core values, they've they've taken this so far that you lose people that you would have had. And I, I think the split is one of those things that, like like the Democratic Party has, they're all going to have to get together and figure out if they're going to lean into the the farthermost reaches of their ideal or if they recognize that somewhere in the middle is how we've managed to get it all done the whole time. And that is the ecosystem, right? It's the ecosystem of having one party be more left and one party being more right that brings us to a place that really is what the democracy is. And, um, you know, the problem Texas is going to have is, you know, this, this all guns all the time is what's stoking the highest um, mass execution, really, of people on living their daily life um, of all time. And, and we can show statistically that when assault weapons are, are banned, we, we didn't have this. Like, you didn't have to worry that your kid might go to school and right. back. Right. Um, and I, and I, I think the fact that people are ignoring that we did 10 years of that and, you know, we didn't lose our Second Amendment rights and people didn't die. <laughs> Those two things go hand in hand. Um, and I think that the people who try to go too far, too fast, you know, I, I used to always say when I was at NAACP, it's a big boat. You cannot turn it fast. If you turn it too fast, the boat will capsize. So, yes, you can turn. Yes, it doesn't mean you have to stay in the same place forever. But you, it, the people who are so impatient that they must turn the boat immediately will find that they turn themselves, they capsize on themselves. So um, I think that that's what's going to happen to those people ultimately, maybe not in the short term because they have the vitriol behind them. But I think ultimately our country has survived and thrived because we've recognized that 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 sort of all the way to the edge doesn't work. One final question, and it's off topic, so I apologize in advance, but I'm a George Washington University alum. I have both my degrees from GW. You're a professor at GW. I'm proud to say that when I was a senior, I led the fight in student government to rename one of the dorms, Calhoun Hall, uh, because John C. Calhoun was a notorious, not just a slave owner, but he was cruel to his slaves. It's well-documented. We successfully renamed the dorm John Quincy Adams Hall, and now it's something else, Jacqueline Kennedy or something like that. Last week, GW announced that its sports teams would no longer be called the Colonials and that they would change the mascot to something that students will vote on in the near future. For, for me personally, I'm of two minds on this. On the one hand, the Colonials after whom the teams were named were the revolutionaries who fought the British. But on the other hand, those same Colonials are the ones who took land and oppressed Native Americans. So the response in the media has been muted 
I, I got a chuckle in one of the from one of the Pittsburgh uh, newspapers the other day. Uh, the Duquesne University uh, teams are also called the Colonials, and their response was, "Oh crap! Now we can't be the Duquesne Colonials anymore because GW's changing, so we should change too." So now they're going to have a, a vote. What are your thoughts on this? You know what? I, I, I don't know if you recall this, but, you know, of course, we live in Washington. I live here. Um, you know, it used to be when the Red, whenever the Redskins name came up, you know, I remember in the Jack Kent Cook days, it was, you know, never over my dead body. Right. Finally, we reached now, and after something that nobody thought could ever happen in years, and now we have the Washington Commanders. Right. Um, I, I think that as the times change— how people respond to things. It's unthinkable back when the Redskins came up that anybody would voluntarily change their name. So it says a lot that George Washington University was thoughtful about this. It's an it's an education institution. And so that means that they're educating their students about what's important and what their values are. And your values change. You know, this yeah. that you know, I love it when the Supreme Court talks about our history. Our values change. If they don't change, that's probably a bigger problem because they have to evolve with the times that are at the present. So I think it shows a great evolution of our university. I'm, I'm taking credit because I do get to teach their great students. They are great people. And I think the fact that they've been thoughtful about this without somebody coming to campus and saying, yeah. hey, without you having to organize the next protest at your university, I think it, it says a lot about how the university is thinking about it its role and its legacy and what it wants to leave its students with. They'll be the students who said, you know what, we don't even want um, the emblems of our university to reflect a time that isn't true to our values. So I think that's a very good spirit. And I, you know, I think that they were ahead of the curve. And I, I think, that, you know what, and I know why it's not, and I know you were worried about this. I, I know why it's not getting media attention except for you. And that's because we live in a world where gun violence and politics and gas prices and war and supply lines are just inundating people. So this this almost seems like a human interest story. But 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 again, it is it is it is one of the turnings of the clock that reflects that there is progress, that people can look inside themselves and say, you know, what's a, what's a better iteration of who we are? You are you're right. And it's easy to forget that that the Washington Wizards used to be named the Washington Bullets, which in the 1980s, in the midst of the crack epidemic, was a really bad idea. And they changed names. And the Houston uh, Astros used to be called the Houston Colt 45s. And then somebody said, you know, it's probably not a good idea to name our team after one of the deadliest weapons involved in uh, in shootings all around the country, and they changed their name to the Astros. So you're right. Our, our... Nobody lost any money on those deals. Nobody lost. No, you're right. Nobody lost any money. So that was fun. Good. Thank you. Well, Kim Keenan, always happy to have Kim Keenan on the show. Kim is an adjunct professor at George Washington University, and she's the former general counsel for the NAACP. I think we're a little short on time. Yeah, and we so don't need a last we break. We don't need a break. No, no. let me tell you the story about a giant fish hauled out of the Mekong. <laughs> I know, I've been waiting for two hours to hear it's this. It's so exciting. Uh, this was in Cambodia. Cambodian fishermen uh, accidentally, it seems, caught the biggest freshwater fish the world has ever seen. It was a giant freshwater stingray. It measured 13 feet, snout to tail, 
weighed at least 300 kilograms. He so that's 60 pounds. Yeah. Uh, twice as much as the average lowland gorilla, which is the oh useful, <laughs> useful, um, you know, example offered here. Yeah. Accidentally caught in a remote stretch on the Mekong River on June 13th. Here is the good news because it is very cool. You can see pictures of this giant. Yeah, the picture is pretty incredible. Laid out. They tagged it and put it back into the water. So it didn't good die. For them. I guess. I guess we're supposed to think that. Yeah. But we were talking um, it, it, on one of the breaks about the Mekong. Yeah, there's giant catfish down there. You know, there's rumors of like dog eating, man eating giant catfish. But I mean, they do. They have these giant versions of of there's regular freshwater fish. There's a show on like National Geographic Channel. River Monsters. River Monsters, yes. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just in the Mekong. It's it's in like the Paraná in uh, in where is that uh, Paraguay and and uh, all the big rivers. Argentina all the big rivers they yeah. have these giant catfish and stuff yeah but you're right like cows will go missing and people will lose yeah and you have also you know uh, people saying this is this is a globally significant event uh, because most species of giant freshwater fish face extinction right because we don't really we know remarkably little about you know these these deep rivers and and what's in them and how much of any of these different species are are in them you know yeah. and all of their their habitats are threatened by development by building dams by building you know communities alongside these rivers by climate change and so you know the this story in vice one of the many places that wrote about it said the stingray is one of only a few remaining giant fish species in the Mekong, which, you know, has a pollution problem, is uh, being dammed. Yeah. Wow. I just like the phrase megafauna or the word megafauna. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, another story that caught my eye that maybe we'll actually talk about in more detail, but apparently there are efforts underway to fight cyber flashing. What Which we all that? know from a, a different rhyming phrase, a, th a thing apparently 40% of millennial women have gotten that they didn't want. Oh, my gosh. And they call Is it, it they call cyber, it cyber flashing. flashing. Uh, one of the executives of uh, Bumble is working on uh, legislation to ban it. Which, you know, you could think like this is sort of uh, small potatoes in terms of global problems. But like, yeah, why should someone be allowed to do something on the Internet that you're not allowed to do to somebody on the street? Yeah in a lifetime to do something like that. Congratulations. I'm going to tell you a really funny story off air. <laughs> thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to the engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>